Amen. Well, this morning I want to minister to you guys on not looking back. Subtitled, The Danger of Focusing on Our Past. So, uh, basically, you know, I've, I've told you guys before, we've talked about it, probably in the sermon, I've talked to a lot of you guys about afterwards, but Christianity is a religion of looking forward, not looking back. Oh, <laughs> oh sorry. <laughs> I look over and she goes like this. So I didn't know what, sorry. Praise God. <laughs> All right. So... <laughs> Christianity is not, is not a religion of, of looking back, but it's a religion of, of looking forward. So, I mean, ask yourselves, how often do we let our past lives, or past lives, sorry, <laughs> how often do we let our past, we only believe in one life here, just in case anybody's listening, there, we don't have past lives, but the past of our life, how often do we let our past dictate what we do in the future? You know, sometimes when we look at our past, it's to our benefit. You know, we learn from mistakes. We learn from stuff that happens. You know, if you go and reach down and you grab a a hot pan and it burns your hand, you learn, hey, let's not touch that again. Let's not. If the pan's on the stove and it's hot, we're not going to grab it by the base and burn our hand. But if we take that experience, that past, and it dictates our future in such an extent that we refuse to touch a pan ever again, now our past, instead of being a learning experience, it is now controlling us completely. We're afraid to touch a pan because one burned us at one time. Or what about when you go out to, uh, uh, in ministry, you know, there was a time that people would go out and be very aggressive and preach fire and brimstone. And, and if we were to go out and try that today, most likely we wouldn't be very effective. Now, if we learn from that and said, okay, this method doesn't work today as, as well as it used to, it doesn't work anymore, let's do things a little different than we've learned from our past. But what if we take that same experience, that bad experience, and and we never go out and tell another person about Jesus again? Now we've let that experience dictate our future. When we focus on our past in that way, it can actually damage our future. And and there's many things like that in our life. There's many things that we look back in our lives and, and, uh, you know, it just dictates how we see things. I mean, you probably imagine things in your life right now that scared you as a kid until this day it may still affect you because you're letting that past experience dictate what's going on. And another thing is our, our memory is funny sometimes. You know, it, it tends to, you've heard the, the, the phrase that time heals all wounds. Well, that's, that's uh, a benefit in a lot of things. In, in terrible experiences, we don't remember them as bad as they were. And it's, it's funny how our mind can do that and make things seem easier. But on the same token, Our mind does that with stuff that we probably shouldn't be looking back fondly at. You know, there's times in my life that I know weren't good times, but I know they were a lot worse when I was going through them than I remember them now. And we're going to look at some some stories in the Bible as we look back and have kind of have this selective memory where they they forget the bad stuff and only remember the good and they want to head back that way. You know, and it's also true that when we look back, it's impossible to see what's in front of you. You know, I mean, this is a revelation. Watch this. I can't see you guys anymore. Revelation right there. I'm looking back, can't see what's in front of me. You know, it's, uh, that's true of, of everybody. And like, have you ever seen someone driving a car? And if, you know, if you start looking back the wrong way and you drive forward, you're going to hit something eventually. You can't move forward while you're looking back. Or have you ever been out running and something catches your attention and you look off to the side? Or even if you're walking and you start doing this number because your head's turned, you're not walking straight anymore. You want to see some good clean fun, do that on a treadmill. Watch somebody get distracted on a treadmill, they look sideways and hit the edge and fly off. It's good, good clean fun. But if you're not looking forward, if you're not looking forward 
and you're looking somewhere else, you can't go on the path that you want to go. Amen. So the first verse I want to look at is Luke 9, 57 through 62. And it's, and it's in verse 57, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you will go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, this is uh, uh, some teaching that Jesus had. Was, it's about discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. You know, and the first man that comes up and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, but the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, we find in a different gospel that this was a scribe. You know, he's used to the comforts of home. He has a house. He has a place to lay his head. And Jesus is saying to him that, you know, if you're going to follow me, sometimes you have to give up some stuff. And is that past... Are you going to be, if you're following me, are you always going to be looking back longing for what you had? Are you always going to be longing for that, for that uh, place to lay your head? Because Jesus said, especially in this particular instance where they were literally getting up and walking behind him, that, you know, I don't have a place to lay my head. I've given up those comforts for the kingdom of heaven. And he says, are you willing to do that? And then we look at the next person he talks to. It says, and he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now this seems like a pretty harsh thing Jesus is saying. Now first he's saying, allow the dead to bury the dead. Jesus is talking about the spiritually dead. It's like, you know what, let the, let the spiritually dead bury the dead the ones that are physically dead. But for you, you have life to give. Your focus is on moving forward and, and preaching the kingdom of God. Your purpose is going forward and giving life, not worrying about burying the dead. And also in this particular case, I've been looking at, at what this probably meant and, and different scholars have different opinions on it. But, but one of the ones that I read was that when uh, he was either his dad wasn't quite dead yet. He would have been dying soon, so we didn't know how long this man was going to have to wait before he was going to follow Jesus. He had something that, that was in the future, and he didn't know when he could follow Jesus. Other scholars say that the father was already dead. He probably already went through the initial Jewish burial uh, a ritual when the son was there and they, they wrap him in the, the myrrh and all the spices and they wrap him up. And then after a year... They go and they remove that and put the bones in a special box and rebury them. And that's the, the, the responsibility of the first son. And they're saying that maybe he was, I mean, that's a full year. If that's the case, that was a year he was going to have to wait before he followed Jesus. But Jesus says, no, you don't look back. You look forward and go preach the kingdom of God. You know, in Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that doesn't mean you're supposed to hate your spouse or your kids. What he's saying is, if you esteem your family, your kids, your wife, you esteem anybody higher than me, you're not fit to follow me. Jesus wants to know that he is first in your life, and then you're not looking back. There's not something that's pulling you down. 
And finally, we start to talk about the, the guy with the plow. And he says, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So the, this illustration that Jesus is using, the plow that would have been used back then, is a, is a wooden device with a big blade on the end of it. And you'd hold it with two hands probably, depending on how it was set up. And there would be a, a oxen in front of them that were attached to this plow. Now, when you're using this kind of plow, you have to focus and keep that blade perfectly level because if you don't, it'll veer off. So when you're plowing forward, you've got your reins of the oxen over your shoulder. You're pushing the oxen forward. They're pulling the plow. And if you look back for a second, you could lose control of it. And you're trying to keep it in. You know, when you plow fields, you see all the straight lines going forward. They tried to keep it in the same furrow. So if you got distracted and were looking the wrong way and you veered off the side, now you've got a furrow that's cutting across into the other ones and it doesn't work right. Or if it's virgin ground, if it's ground that's never been plowed before, what the plower would do is he would look off in the distance and pick a point, and he would walk straight towards that point, and he would never take his eyes off of it so he could keep it in a straight line. Because if he, if he lost focus, if he looked away for a second, if he looked behind him at what was going on, you know, if he wanted to admire the awesome furrow he's leaving in his wake, he would veer off and it wouldn't be a straight line. And that's what Jesus is talking about. When you put your hand to the plow, you need to be focused. When you, when you put your hand to the plow, you need to be ready to do the job and get it done and keep looking forward. You know what Jesus is saying, if you say you're going to follow me, you need to follow me. Don't look back at your past. Don't look at what's happened before. Let's put our eyes on, on, on me and let's, let's put our eyes on the kingdom of God. So the question is, what is your focus and your priority? Jesus is saying with this reference that if you're continually looking at what was, you're continually looking at a way, then you're unfit for the kingdom. But if your focus is him, you'll be effective for the kingdom. You can't be effective for both. We can't be effective for the kingdom of God if we're constantly being ruled and directed by our past. But if you want to be, if you put, and if you put something before God, the same thing, you limit your, your ability to, to move forward for God. But if we'll focus on him, then we can do great things for the kingdom of God. And it doesn't mean that you can't have other things. It doesn't mean that you're not going to enjoy life. But the question is, what is our priority? Is life our priority? Is what we used to do our priority? Or is the kingdom of heaven our priority? Amen? And then uh, in, in Luke 17, 28 through 33, I've entitled this, Remembers Lot, Remember Lot's Wife. And it says, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. This is Jesus speaking. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. You guys remember what happened to Lot's wife when she turned back to look at the city? She turned to salt. We'll look at that story here in a moment. But Jesus is talking about that this is, uh, he's talking about the return, the return of Christ. When Jesus comes back, what's going to happen? There's going to be a time, and Jesus said he'll return like a thief in the night. The truth is, you're going to get up the morning that Jesus comes back, should he tarry before we or should he not tarry before we pass away, that you're going to get up and you're going to make your breakfast and you're going to get ready and go to work. And whenever he comes back, it's going to happen. We're not going to be expecting it. And that happened just like in Sodom. It happened in Noah's time too, that they were going about their daily business. And in this case, 
fire and brimstone rain down on our city. There's going to become a day that, that we're going to be going along our business and Jesus is going to come back. And the question is, are you looking at him and are you going to go with him or are you looking back? You're on the housetop looking at your goods. Oh, what's going to happen to my house, all my stuff? You're looking back at your past. Are you going to be focused on that or on Jesus? Are you going with him or are you going to be stuck here on this earth? It says, and likewise, one of the field must not turn back. Basically, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep going forward. Um, H.A. Ironside, Henry Ironside, he was a pastor in the early 1900s. I was reading a story about him, and he says, I remember one night in Stockton, California, I was preaching about the coming of Jesus. As I was in prayer, I was conscious of a woman getting up and going out. For in those days, the skirts would swish whenever a lady walked. <laughs> you need to hear her skirts. It seemed to me that this lady must have gone out in a hurry. That means she was really loud. When I finished my prayer, I went to greet the friends at the door, and I found a woman pacing back and forth of the lobby. The, woman, the moment I came, she said to me, How would you dare to pray like that? Come, Lord Jesus. I don't want him to come. It would break on, on, in on all my plans. How dare you? And I said, My dear young woman, Jesus is coming, whether you like it or not. Oh, if you know him and love him, surely your heart says, Come, Lord Jesus. This woman's priorities were obviously out of whack. And I tell you what, I remember as a kid, do you remember when, uh, do you guys remember talking about the Hale-Bopp comment when it was coming through for a while? Well, I had a neighbor, and I don't know how much this is true, but he was telling me that they were thinking this comment was going to come pretty close to earth. And he was telling me, me all these stories. And this is, I'm, I'm, I may have been 12 or 13, 14. I'm pretty young and not really saved. And, and uh, he's telling me, you know, if this comment comes too close, the, the, the gravitational pull could throw the Earth out of orbit, and if it puts us off our axis, it's basically gravity's going to change, we're all going to die, and it's going to be miserable, and this is going to happen in a couple of years. I'm 13, I'm like, and all I could think about was all the stuff I had never done. I'm like, if everybody dies, all the stuff I hadn't done, I mean, and uh, yeah, I, I was distraught, I was torn, and the same thing's going on with this woman. If Jesus comes back, what about all the plans I have, all the stuff I want to do, all the things I'm going to do? Now, I thank God now that, that uh, you know, I'm ready for Jesus to come back. I want to go be with the Lord. And, but on the same token, I want to stay here. Like Paul said, you know, it is beneficial. I want to be with the Lord, but it's more to your benefit if I stay. There's people here that won't be reached if Jesus comes back tomorrow. There's people that, that if I were to pass away, if I were to go, that, that, that were supposed to be touched by me, that wouldn't be touched if I were to go. But the truth is, if we're focused on Jesus, that's what we're looking at. It's his coming, his return. You know, when Jesus comes back, that means that everybody had an opportunity. Everybody had an opportunity. That's what Jesus said. I'll come back when, when the, the whole world is preached to. But Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. You know, God rescued Lot and his wife and his two daughters. This, this city is, is literally going to be destroyed, and, and the angels grab them by the hands and pull them out. But Lot's wife, she longed for what she had. As she's living, she's thinking about all her nice Tupperware and the awesome kitchen she had, thinking about maybe the new, the new car she just got. She's looking back. And because she looked, because she was stuck on all these these earthly things, all this stuff. That, I mean, God was rescuing her from from certain death, and she's God's more concerned with her life than her stuff. 
but she's a little more concerned with her stuff than her life, and it ends up costing her her life. She looks back, longing for all that stuff she had, and she loses her life. You know, it's such a profound phrase where he says, whoever seeks to keep his life, because if we hold on to earthly things now, if we're more concerned with being able to do the stuff that we want to do and hang out with the people we want to hang out with, drink the stuff we want to drink, and, and if we're so concerned about all these earthly priorities, we're going to lose our eternal life. But if we focus on our eternal life and are willing to give up anything so that we can be with God, we, we reap an eternal life. And I thank God that in doing so, in honoring God and focusing on Him, we still get to enjoy life on earth today. Amen. So let's look at uh, the story of Lot. In Genesis 19.12-14, says, Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you, have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. Now this is something interesting to me because we know Lot has son-in-laws. It also says that he has sons and he has daughters. But we know that the only ones that make it out are him, his wife, and two of his daughters. And he says, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to, be, to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. You know, these, God destroyed this city, if you know the story, just because of how bad these people were. I mean, they were... Now, they were much like America today. You know, they're, it's, it's, they're doing some stupid stuff, and so are we in this country. Now, I thank God that Jesus paid the penalty for sin. The benefit that we have that they didn't have is that Jesus hadn't come yet, that, that sin had to be paid for. There was punishment for, for what they were doing. Now, I thank God that today that... Uh, the penalty for sin has been paid. Jesus paid it in full. Sin is not an issue to God. When you hear stories about, oh, the reason why the hurricane came to New Orleans is because they're so bad there, and all these natural disasters is, is, is God punishing people. Oh, and the reason why there's, there's shootings in schools is because we took God out of school and he's teaching, teaching everybody a lesson. Yeah, because God's going to send somebody in to kill all the, the young children to teach the adults a lesson for not letting God in. It's ridiculous. All that stuff's been paid for. The truth is, if you live near the ocean in a hurricane zone, you might get hit with a hurricane every now and then. And we live in a broken world with broken people that need God. And they'll do stupid things because they're broken inside. You know, the angels are in this city because, if you remember right before this, Abraham spent some time arguing with God. Well, what if you find, you know... <clears throat> A hundred righteous people, will you save this city? Well, what if you find 50? What if you find 30? And he finally says, God, if you find 10 righteous people in the city, will you save the city? And, and, and God tells Abraham, yes, if I find 10 people, I won't destroy these cities. Well, he doesn't find 10 people. He finds four. And thank God that those righteous people were pulled out. You know, we find that Lot, Lot has, some, has some rough stuff going on. He, he gets rescued from, from being captured, and he still goes back to Sodom. He goes and he lives in the city. And, but the Bible says in 2 Peter 2, 7 through 8, that, uh, that, that uh, Lot is a righteous man, and his soul was tormented daily by what was going on there. Now, why he chose to stay there and be tormented, I'm not quite so sure. You know, if you're in a situation like that, get out. Don't be subject yourself to that stuff. But he stayed there, and the angels and God 
decided he was going to save those four righteous people. You know, the sons-in-laws didn't make it. I don't know what they were thinking. You know, it says that uh, they appeared to be jesting. I mean, when my, when my father-in-law, someone I trust, comes and talks to me, I'm going to believe what he's saying. So I don't, I don't know what's going on there. Did they have something that they'd rather have? Were they happy with the life they were living? You know, the Bible doesn't really talk about it, but I imagine that's why they stayed. They'd rather have the stuff that they have than have to leave everything. No matter, you know, it's easy to say someone's joking or not telling the truth if you want to keep what you currently have. So then in Genesis 19:17, it says, When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. This is the angels talking. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. You know, when God tells us something, He's not telling us to take away our fun. You know, He wasn't telling them, Don't look back because... I don't want you to have one more memory of what you had. I don't want you to think about what's going on. He's telling that because if you look back, you will be swept away with it. You know, Lot, or Lot's wife wasn't caught off guard. She wasn't tricked into this. I mean, they told them, don't look back. And she did anyway. When we have to, sometimes we have to run from our past. You know, there's stuff in our lives that can have such a great hold on us that we just need to stay away from it. We need to run away and not look back. You know, and it's different for everybody. You know, if there's some people that, that if they put themselves, you know, an alcoholic that is freed from, from alcoholism by Jesus, how many know it's not a good idea for them to go hang out in the bar? Probably not their mission field. Because sometimes you need to run from your past and stay away from it and don't let it influence and don't give it an opportunity to influence you. Otherwise, it can sweep you away. The same thing that happens to Lot's wife. Then we find in Genesis 19:23 through 26 that the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Zor is the city that he asked God to let him go stay in outside of Sodom. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. The sons-in-laws didn't believe him and they perished with the city. His wife looked back at all the good times that she had, and she perished with the city. The reason she perished wasn't because of the stuff that she did in the city, if she was doing any bad things or who she was. It's because her heart wasn't with God. Her heart was with all that that she used to have. So the question we ask her, where is your heart this morning? Do you have a heart for God, or do you have a heart for the life that you used to have? And then we'll take a look at the, the Israelites. In Exodus 16, 1-3, it says, Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after the departure from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Can you imagine how loud that was? Hundreds of thousands of people whining at the same time. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You know, sometimes we look back, this is that selective memory I was talking about. These Israelites just got rescued out of Egypt. They were enslaved. They were forced to do slave labor. They were making bricks day in and day out, and as the Pharaoh tried to punish them, he even took away their, their straw. So it was even harder to make bricks and increase their quota. They were getting beaten, and, and they were just being oppressed. Seriously. 
And then they get out in the wilderness, they get rescued. We find out that God rescues them. They see incredible miracles. The, the walls, the, the Red Sea is split open so they can make it across. They, get, they just come out with tons of gold. I mean, the, the, the God says that the, basically they robbed the Egyptians because the Egyptians just gave them everything. Get out of here. They're, they're, they're blessed in every way that they can imagine. And they start whining. Oh, if we could go back to Egypt where we had food, we had meat, and we had bread, and we ate to the full. You know, they forgot about all the bad stuff. They have this selective memory. Oh, it wasn't that bad. At least we, could, at least we weren't hungry. But then God shows up and he says, all right, and he gives them manna. Remember, manna came down from heaven, and it literally translates to what is it? And they made flour from, they ground it up like flour, and they made cakes. And then we find in Numbers 11, 4 through 6, a little while down the road, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing all to look at except this manna. This is a miracle they see every single morning. And they've become completely jaded to it. All we see is this manna. We used to eat free fish and food. You know, it wasn't free. When you're, when you're being a slave and working for it, how many know that's not free? There's a price to be paid for their fish and their garlics and their leeks. You know, they, they forget about the harsh treatment they had from their, their Egyptian masters. They complain that God's provision isn't enough. Have you ever complained that what God's doing in your life isn't enough? Maybe you think it this way. Have you ever seen your kids complain about your provision in their life? Oh, it's so bad. It's horrible. All my friends have cell phones and I can't have a cell phone yet. All my friends, all my friends are getting a car when they turn 16 and, and, and I'm not getting one. You, you hear that kind of stuff? All my friends are having a sweet 16 party. All my friends have video games. I mean, do you realize how good you have it? You just want to shake them. You ever want to shake your kids? I, I can't believe you. I don't want to shake my kids. I can't believe all you guys shook your head. Yes, that's crazy. But yeah, I mean, I, I think God wants to shake us sometimes. Like, really, look what I've given you, and you're whining? And that's what the Egyptians, or not the Egyptians, the Israelites are doing. You know, and, and they just look back at their life, and they think, oh, how much better it was. Look what we had and not what we don't have. You know, an example I can think of in my life that, that might fit this situation is uh, uh, before I got saved and was following God, I'd, I was a, a big fan of uh, LimeWire and uh, what was the one before? Anyway, but I was downloading music from everywhere. And uh, you know, these are people that, that this is their living. They make music and this is how they, they live. They sell this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the same as any of our jobs. We do something for income. And that's what these, these musicians, these artists do. But I was taking their music, I was downloading it, and, and, and from wherever I could find it, and I had gigabytes upon gigabytes of music. And uh, I got saved and started to get my life back to God, and I recognized that, you know, I'm stealing someone's livelihood. I, I didn't have the right to take their stuff, so I deleted everything. Now, I could look back right now and say, you know what? I had a lot more music back then than I do now that I've had to pay for everything, that I bought every CD. I could look back and say, you know, before I was saved, it was really good. I can listen to whatever I wanted. I could download and watch any movie I wanted. I software, any software I wanted, I could just rip it off the internet. I could, you know, there's this idea that you could look back and that was better than the way I have it now. 
But the truth is that when you're doing that stuff, it, it's, it's damaging to you. Not only is it damaging to them, but it's damaging to you when you're, when you're stealing from somebody that actually damages your soul, that damages who you are. I would much rather be free in Christ than have all this free stuff. Like, I mean, look at the people that are, that are criminals and they steal cars and they steal stuff. I mean, yeah, they, if, if you don't steal, you've got to pay for that stuff. But is your life better because you don't have it or worse? I say it's better that I'm following God than having these trappings of sin before, amen? And what about in our lives when we look back for fear? We see what's coming in our future and we're scared, so we look back and think how much better it was before then. In Numbers 14, 1-4, it says, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword our wives and our little ones will become plunder would it not be better for us to return to Egypt so they said to one another let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt so this is right after the spies report on the land you remember Jacob and Caleb were like yeah there's giants but we can take them God is with us but the other the other ten spies were like no we need to we can't do it. God's just sent us there to kill us. Kill us. You know, God is giving them their promised land. He's giving them what they promised, and they're scared. You know, it might take a little bit of work. It might take them going in there and trusting God. So because they're scared to trust God, they look back for fear and want what they used to have. Oh, why couldn't we have just died somewhere else? Why couldn't we go back to Egypt? You know, I know... That sometimes times get a little bit tougher when you decide to follow Jesus. You know, you get to work and people might mock you or give you a hard time because you've decided to follow Jesus and you don't want to deal with the stuff that they're doing anymore. Or sometimes the demands of Christianity can be a little bit daunting. You know, I know, you know, I'm constantly encouraging you guys to go to men's meetings and Bible studies and, and, and that's a bigger demand on your time than you've ever had for church. I know it. The question is, was it better before? Are you looking back at your life when you had a little bit more time? Was that better? Or are you, are you willing to look forward to God and, and, and push through some of the stuff that we might find difficult to serve Him? I know when we got started in this whole endeavor with, the, with starting the church, you know, Michelle and I faced some tough times. We spent two years trying to get a Bible study going with, with little to no success. Vinny started with us in the very beginning. We'd have somebody show up for, for one service and, or one Bible study and never come back. You know, do you remember that stuff, Vinny? We have people come and then never show back up. Joseph, you saw it too. And, you know, there's times when you're thinking, God, what if this never works out? What am I doing? You know, I know if I just go back to my job, I can live on that income and be happy. It's so easy to look back at what was and say, oh, this was easier. Why can't I just go back there? But we've decided to persevere. We've decided to keep pressing forward. And I'm so thankful because I would have never met any of you guys. I've never been able to be a part of your life if I wouldn't have pressed forward. You know, I see what God's doing here, and I'm absolutely amazed at his faithfulness, which is funny in and of itself. Do you ever find it weird that you're amazed at God's faithfulness when that's who he said he was? That's a different story. What about money? Have you ever been afraid that you not make, might not make rent if you, if you put the tithe, your offering in? I remember when I was first, first trying to, uh, to, to get right with God and do things the right way, and rent would be coming up, and if I didn't have enough money to, to pay rent, if I tithed, I wouldn't do it. And you'd be amazed at how many checks I would still bounce. 
when I finally said, you know what, I'm going to trust God. And even if I don't have the money in the account for, for both, God gets his first. And I would be amazed at how God would bring money in, how God would make it. A check wouldn't clear until the next, my next paycheck would come in. or Stuff would just happen that, that was God's hand moving because I honored him. But it's real easy to be scared for that. It's really easy to, to not honor him because you're afraid of what this world could do to you. In Mark 10, 17 through 22, we're going to read the story of the rich young ruler. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, that's Jesus, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these things from my youth up. I looked, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess to give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. The first thing that I want to look at is this part here. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Has anybody ever read that and been kind of confused at that? Because Jesus was God, so obviously he was good. See, we take this all the time as this is a rebuke from Jesus going, why do you call me good? We think, he's, we think it's like Jesus saying, why do you call me good? I'm not good. Only God is good. But this isn't a rebuke. Jesus is asking him, why do you call me good? Do you understand what you're saying? Jesus wasn't disaffirming his deity. He was saying, yes, I am good. God, do you, why do you call me good? Do you understand what you're saying? Do you understand that you are referring to me as God? Do you, do you get that? Are you, are, you, are you hearing what you're saying? Because what's probably happening is this, this little ruler is, is trying to flatter Jesus. Because he figures if he, can, if he can butter Jesus up, maybe the uh, requirements to inherit eternal life will be a little bit more lenient. But Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? Do you understand what you're saying? Do you understand what you're doing? No one is good except God alone. He was affirming, yes, I am good. Do you understand you're calling me that? No one is good but God alone. So then we find out that... Uh, he tells them, all right, here's the things you've got to do. These are the physical requirements. You notice these are the ones, these are the, this is the checklist that if you've done all these according to the law, then, uh, then, you're, then you're good. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, do not honor your father and mother. These are the physical things. Sorry, honor your father and mother. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Anyway, honor your father and mother. These are the physical things that you need to do. These are the checklists. And, uh, and he says, well, teacher, I've done all these things. Now, I'm curious to know if this guy is just, you know, talking out his rear because how many of you know that, that even the best of people <laughs> have made small errors? I mean, it's easy. Yeah, I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. You can even say I've never stolen but how many of these other ones are a little bit easier for you to do under the radar? Bear false witness? You ever lie? Oh, I've never told a real lie. Just a white lie. Yeah, it's a lie. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. You know, even the best of us have probably slipped in these areas. But that's okay. This guy, he's a pretty incredible man. He's, he's done everything right. 
And Jesus says he has love for him. And he says, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor. How many of you know that uh, the issue is not all that he possessed? You know, if uh, in this man's life, if it was football that was holding him back, if it was football that, that took up all of his time, if it was football that was his God, in this case, money was this man's God. And he said, if you need to get rid of that so you can follow me. But maybe in your life it's not money. Maybe it's football. If football comes before God, that's what you need to lay down. You know, if uh, cars come before God, that's what you need to lay down. If your family comes before God, that's what you need to lay down. Now, it's not to say that you can't have these things. You can't, uh, you can't watch football. You can't honor your family. You can't spend time with your family. But you need to, it needs to have its, its priority in place. God is always first. You know, the Bible says that one, uh, a man who doesn't take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. Family is important to God. You know, it's, it's not those things. It's the stuff that gets in the way. You know, of all the people that ever came to Jesus, this was one of the few who left him unchanged. Most people came to Jesus and they were touched. They, they were lame and they could walk. They were blind and they could see. They were touched by God when they came to Jesus. But this man came. And not only did he, he not get changed, he left worse than when he came. Why did he come worse? Because one, he learned what he, what he had to do to, to inherit eternal life. He learned that it was in his grasp. But he also knew that he was unwilling to do it. Money was so important to this man that, that he turned away from God to hold on to that earthly, earthly uh, uh, treasure and gave up an eternal life. You know, let's make sure that we're not looking back at our, at our worldly stuff and keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. Don't let anything in the way of your relationship with him. Amen? And in Mark 10, 22 through, through 27, it says, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. It says the disciples were amazed at his words. The word, he said, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples are amazed at these words. And I'm not really, so I was confused. So I did some research. Why are they amazed? Well, it turns out that in the Jewish culture, if you were wealthy, that was taken as a sign that you were blessed by God. If you were wealthy, that means God, you had God's favor. And they're like, wait a minute. Wealthy people have God's favor. Why is it going to be hard for them to enter the kingdom of heaven? But, you know, something we can recognize in our life is that we know that all wealthy people are not blessed. The Bible says in Proverbs 10.22, it says, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. You know, there are football players and professional sports players that are filthy rich, but they are miserable. They commit suicide. They go into bankruptcy. They destroy their lives. They get hooked into drugs and to women, and, and there's, they're not happy. Because how many know that, that the enemy is going to try to bless his followers too? You know, if he can make young men and women 
want to be football players and do all kinds of stupid because they have a lot of money, why wouldn't he do the same thing for those people? But the truth is that if it doesn't, if it adds sorrow to it, if it makes you miserable, if you don't have the blessing of the Lord in your life, then it's not from him. See, money is a great servant, but a terrible master. And as long as money is your master, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God. And the truth is, if anything else is your master, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So the disciples say, then who can be saved if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Now, I imagine the needles they had back then aren't as precise with the tiny little holes that we have now, but it's still not a very big hole. And camels are huge. You ever seen a camel? What he's saying is that it's, it's impossible. But I want you to know that he says with people it is impossible, with, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You know, if you let God influence your life, if you're struggling with something that's always in the way, talk to God about it. Tell him, Lord, I want to keep my focus on you. I want to put you first. Help me to set this aside, and God will honor your prayer. God will help you. He will give you wisdom to deal with it. You know, he will give you the strength to conquer and put into submission all things that have a hold on you, all those things that hold you back from him. Amen? And this is a story of Ezekiel, or not Ezekiel, Elijah and Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, 15 through 16, the Lord said to him, this is God talking to Elijah, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahalah you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So what's happened is, is Elijah's in a cave. Right before this, Elijah's in a cave. So if you know the story, Elijah goes up and he has a battle with the prophets of Baal. And uh, basically he's, he mocks them and says, you know, whoever brings fire down and, and laps up these two offerings, then that's who God is. And the prophets of Baal are dancing around, cutting themselves, being silly, and, and he starts mocking them. Well, maybe you need to yell louder. Maybe your God's asleep. Then he'll come. Maybe you need to do these things. And he begins to mock them, and we know the story. He, uh, he puts and dumps water over everything and fills a trough and, and asks God to bring down fire from heaven, and boom, brings up the offering. And then we have, uh, there's been a drought this whole time, so he uh, asks God to bring back rain, and we know that it begins to rain. But then we find out that Jezebel wants to kill him. This, this lady, the, the wife of the king, uh, 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 Ahab, I think. Uh, king Ahab is his wife, and she wants to kill him for all this stuff's going on. Basically, he's made a mockery of, of King Ahab, and, uh, and she wants to kill him. And now this man, who has just killed all these prophets who has the power of God behind him is scared of this one lone woman and he just bails he takes off and he goes and he hides in a cave and God says what are you doing in this cave and basically what he should have answered was I'm just having a pity party for myself it's so bad this lady wants to kill me so basically God says all right get back in the game come on get up head back there let's anoint some kings and anoint your anoint the next prophet that's going to come up and replace you and you're like and my first thought was man he's replacing him God wasn't replacing Elijah. Elisha. What he was doing, or Elijah, what he was doing was saying that your legacy is not going to end with you. Let's raise up the next person. It's not going to stop with you. We're going to continue on. That's why you're going to anoint the next prophet in your place. 
So we find here in 1 Kings 19, 19-21, he goes to find Elisha. He says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And while he was plowing with twelve pairs of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth, and Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. This story cracks me up. I mean, I think Elijah, and I don't know if this is true or not, this is just how I read it, but he must be just a little, just a little irritated or jaded with what's going on. So he walks up. On God, I'll go anoint Elisha, and he sees him and just chucks his mantle on him and just keeps on going. So he threw his mantle at him, and it just—it's just hilarious to me that he just throws and takes off. I imagine Elisha is like, "Wait a minute, what are you doing? What's like, what happened?" Elijah, Elijah just takes off. So Elisha. Uh, runs up to him, or Elijah runs up to Elisha and says, please let me kiss my father and mother, then I will follow you. And he says, go back again, for what have I done to you? So now it almost seems like Elijah's irritated again, like, I'm not the one that called you, God did. Go do what you want to do, I don't care. And, uh, you know, we read earlier that, that God said that uh, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus told uh, that disciple that was asking, you know, you couldn't even go say bye to your father and mother. We, we find that it's just a conflicting principles, but we still see Elijah's uh, commitment to God because he goes back and he takes those 12 oxen and he slaughters them and gives them as an offering to God. And he takes his plow, it says right here, he sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen. He took the plow and all the stuff they were using, built a fire, sacrificed his oxen, and then he got up and followed Elijah and began ministering to him. How many people know that if if you get up and you, he essentially burned all his bridges. If you get up and, and you're a farmer and you're, you need your oxen and your, your plow to do your job, if you burn everything, you're not going back to that profession. Elijah was committed to God. There was no turning back. He was, he was never going to look back at what had. He put it behind him. Not only did he put it behind him, he burned it. He said that I'm giving everything to you, God. And then in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, it says, therefore, we have such a, we have, yeah, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, we need to set aside all of our old stuff, all that old junk in our life that wants to, to come up and, and entangle our feet, that wants to pull us back down to who we were. And, uh, you know, the, we're dead to sin. Sin is dead to us. It has no control of us. We need to put it behind us. Quit looking back at it and, and letting it fill our mind and keep our eyes on Jesus. It says fixing our eyes on Jesus, we can run this race, this endurance race, this, this ongoing battle of our lives for, for the glory of God. You know, and it's, I like it says that it's an endurance race because sometimes in an endurance race, I mean, you don't, you don't go off with a sprint and hold that speed the whole time. In an endurance race, you pace yourself. You keep moving forward. You make steps. If you fall, you get back up. As long as you get back up, more times than you fall, you're winning. Amen? And then we talk about Jesus. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, we talked about this verse in the men's meeting yesterday. As Pastor Rick ministered on, on the times of our life that you have ups and downs, like a heartbeat, you have ups and downs. And if your life looks like a heartbeat with ups and downs, then you're alive. But if your, your heart looks like the, the graph on, on the, the equipment in the hospital, it's a flat line, then you're dead. 
sometimes you're in the valley, sometimes you're in the, you're in the valley, sometimes you're in the peaks. And, uh, but Jesus, he's in a valley. He's up on a cross. But it says he despised the shame for the joy set before him. You know, Jesus could have looked back at how good things were when he was walking before he was being killed, before he was being punished. But instead he looked forward. He never looked back. He looked forward to us. We were the joy set before him. And he despised the shame. You know, Jesus is our example. His eyes were forward, focused forward on us. He was our redemption. So our eyes should be focused forward on him, not worrying about our situations now, not being pulled back by our past. But if, like Jesus, we continue to look forward, then we can finish the course that's set before us. And in 1 John 3, 18-21, it says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of truth and we will assure our heart before him and whatever our heart condemns us for God is greater than our heart and knows all things beloved if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence before God has your heart ever condemned you has your heart when you've made a, when you've messed up you know when you've fallen has your heart ever told you God doesn't love you. Look at what you did. Look at those silly, you know, you're not worthy of God. Is your heart, have you ever been able to tell yourself those kind of things? Has your heart condemned you? You know, it says here that we can assure our heart before God. And whatever our heart condemns us, if our heart's condemning us, we can say, no, God paid the price for that. I am free. I am redeemed. I am holy. This thing that you're condemning me for has no control on my life because I will not stare at it and let it control me. I'll put my eyes on him and remember that he has set me free and that he's made me whole. That he's given me the ability to conquer this thing that I'm struggling with. And it says, because God is greater than our heart. You know, when God tells you something, it's truer than if your heart tells you something. Unless your heart agrees with God, your heart is lying. What God says goes. What God says is the ultimate authority in our life. If your heart tells you that, you are, that you're a failure because of this thing, but God says you're not a failure, you're a success because I love you and I told you that you are, then God, what God says goes. That's what should impact your life. And then in Acts 23.1, Paul says that he was looking intently at the council and said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now this shocked the council, the Jewish council, because he says, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience. You guys are, saw in the book of Acts all the stuff that Paul did, right? He held back his coat while, while Thomas was killed. He was dragging Christians out of their homes and killing them. I mean, Paul did some pretty nasty stuff. I mean, Paul was like the, the, the Hitler of his day going after Christians. And uh, Paul says, I've lived my life with a perfectly clear conscience. It wasn't because of the stuff he did. Because if he was living his life according to the things that he did, according to what his heart was condemning him for, Paul would have been a messed up man. But he knew what God said about him. Because God said he was clean. Because God said he was forgiven. His conscience was clear. And so should yours. Amen? Don't let your past failures dictate where you're going today. Philippians 3, 12-13, it says, Not that I have already obtained it, this is Paul speaking, or I have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which is also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. 
If even Paul said that he had room to grow, even Paul said that I'm pressing forward and I'm growing every day, I haven't laid hold of it yet, that we can rest easy knowing that it's okay if we haven't laid hold of it yet, as long as we keep pressing forward. He says, I forget what lies behind. And he's talking about his successes as well as his failures. You know, your successes will hold you down just as greatly as your failures. There are Christians today who can only talk about what they did 20 years ago that's holding them down from doing anything today because they remember the glory days, the good old days, all these things that were happening. You know, Paul didn't let his failures or his successes condemn him nor hold him back. He says he kept moving forward. He reached forward to what lies ahead. This is our roadmap for how we should be living our lives. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is how we should live our lives, forgetting what lies behind and looking forward. In Philippians 3, 14 through 16, this is the next verses there, Paul continues to say, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, remember we've had this question before, who in here is perfect? Raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand. <laughs> no, seriously, everybody. There you go. In Christ, you are perfect. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about the stuff that you've done. I want you to know that you are perfect in Christ. Now, I understand that sometimes it takes a little, bit, a little while for our body, for our soul, our mind, and our thoughts to catch up with what God has done in our life. But Paul said, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, that's all of you that are saved, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Ask God to reveal the areas in your life where you haven't grabbed hold of the revelation of who you are in Him. God will reveal that to you so you can begin to stand against it and say, no, I am perfect in Christ Jesus. And he says, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. How many people feel like you've obtained that standard? I know I don't feel that way, but Paul says we have. Because Paul's referring to what Christ has done inside of us. We've attained that standard, so, so let's live it. You know, there's a, a scripture where, where Paul says that, you know, liars and cheaters and swindlers and murderers and adulterers won't get into the kingdom of heaven. And he says, but such were some of you. You know, don't act like what you used to be. Live to that standard which you have attained because you are perfect in Christ Jesus. And finally, we're going to finish off with the disciples speaking to, uh, to Jesus in Mark 10, 28-31. So Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the ages to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You know, when we set aside our earthly possessions, these things that we, we look in our past that were so important to us, these things that have a grip on us, these things that we have to leave behind. You know, I thank God that he says that, that uh, there is no one who has left all these things that will not receive a hundred times as much from now. And we all think one day in heaven, right? But Jesus says, no, in this present age, 
you will reap the same thing that you walked away from. God will take care of you. He will honor you. It says, you will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, which you gave up, brothers and sisters, which you gave up, mothers and children and farms. Now, it says you're going to get some persecution along with it. If you're a Christian, you're going to get some persecution because the enemy doesn't like you. Uh, Jesus said, if the world hates me, they will hate you. But God is going to take care of you. And then also, in the age to come, we receive eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You know, he's talking here of worldly views. You know, there's some stuff that we'll give up, and people are going to think that you're crazy. What are you doing that for? I have it so much better than you because of what I have and what you're giving up. You know, you're giving something up so that you would be considered last in this, in this world today. But God said that the first will be last. Those people that live worldly today that are, have everything that they need, you know, those people that, that are rich from, from sin and, and they're doing all these things, they think they got it pretty good now, but they're going to pay a price. They're going to pay an eternal price if they don't give it to God. If they don't give their life to God and accept Him as His Lord and Savior, the first will be last. But those of us who are willing to give up stuff for God, who are willing to, to put our lives focused on Him and look at Him and everything that we do be a result of wanting to be honoring and pleasing to Him and grow the kingdom of heaven, then we, being last in this earth, will be first. Amen? Amen.